Today is going to, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. Okay, so the last time we covered the marriage supper of the Lamb, and I encourage you, if you weren't here, to, you know, get a free download, get it online, because it was really a neat picture of the relationship between believers in Christ with a picture of marriage. So I tried to hit that from all angles, and I really had an enjoyable time studying it. Uh, we saw the second coming, and we saw, lastly, the supper for the meat-eating fowls of the air feeding on the wicked dead. Kind of sounds like a title for a horror movie, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's what we had. And today we're going to see the literal, literal millennial kingdom, or thousand years, uh, or it's known as the kingdom age. We see a lot of this unfulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament about a blissful experience, longevity, Edenic conditions like in the beginning. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of really delve into this because I think it's important. We're going to see Satan's rebellion once again, or his last rebellion, and the great white throne judgment, or eternal hellfire. A little fire and brimstone today. Uh, what I did order was these timelines, which we should get before next Sunday, which I'll put in the bulletins. Some of you may have had them. I, I handed them out maybe a year ago. Uh, and it basically gives a timeline based on the scripture of how human events and chronological order are going to unfold. And it's very helpful. If you're a little bit confused by the order of what we're doing, these things are really a concise way to kind of get an idea of where we're at. I take for granted that I study it, so to me it just comes naturally, but the real challenge is for me to express it in a way that you understand it. Okay, so we're going to jump in, chapter 20, verse 1. Now this is the Apostle John speaking again. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So you see an angel. The angel is unnamed. He comes down from heaven. He grabs Satan, who we're all familiar with. He chains him and throws him into the bottomless pit and sets a seal on him. Now, those who try to allegorize the scripture would say, well, what kind of iron fetters would hold Satan? I didn't say that they were iron fetters, nor does it say in the scripture. If God made Satan, he can find a way to bind Satan. So something the Apostle John is seeing, it looks like a great chain, whatever it's made of, it's able to hold Satan. We saw in the Revelation 9, the bottomless pit before, and that was where the demons were released to torment the rebellious. And here, we see the bottomless pit again. Satan is incarcerated to stop his activity for a thousand years. Now, this whole abyss, bottomless pit, I find fascinating little point of interest in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus goes to the demon-possessed man and he says, uh, we are legion for we are many. All these demons inhabited him. And as soon as they saw Jesus, they recognized him. And they said, we know who you are. You're the, the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? Don't throw us into the abyss, but we'd like to go into the pigs instead. So the abyss must be pretty bad if, you know, you have a choice between the abyss and a bunch of pigs, and you want to go into the pigs. All right, so we see this place isn't going to be fun. Now, some believe, and it's conjecture. I don't know if it's, it's correct or not, but some believe that the bottomless pit as well as Tartarus, uh, as well as the bad part of Hades is in the center of the earth. 
Uh, again, I don't, I'm not going to weigh in one or the other, but it is interesting. They did a little study on the center of the earth, and basically it's um, an iron core at about 5,000 degrees. No one has been able to reach it yet because of obvious conditions. Uh, we can only take seismic readings and some other extrapolations. But the bottomless pit, if it was the center of the earth, there wouldn't be any up or down. As the earth rotated and you're in the center, you're not up, you're not down. If those of you who have done deep sea diving, sometimes there's a condition if you go down too deeply into the ocean where the lighting is low and, and you know, there's, you, you kind of get disoriented. And you could be swimming thinking you're going to the surface and you're going back down. So it's, it's an interesting thing to look at. Again, I don't know if there's any merit to it, but uh, it's, it's, it's fun to, to play with. Now, notice one thing that we should get out of this. God didn't directly grab Satan. Some unnamed angel. Didn't say he was an archangel. He just, God says he dispatches an angel. Go take care of Satan for me, will you? Take care of my light work, so to speak. But it's just an angel. Now, we, some make Satan out to be stronger than he is. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 14, there's a point in time where people will look at Satan and say, is this the one that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, that made everybody's life miserable, that tormented the nation, that tempted us? This is the one? So even when he's seen finally, it's not going to be very impressive. Uh, but I think even believers, and, and maybe it's based on the Hollywood generation, but you see all these horror movies and uh, Satan comes out to be such a powerful force as God's equal. Satan is not God's equal. God made him and he can distribute, dispatch him, get rid of him as he wishes. And we'll see that later on. But there's no excuses for sinning based on Satan's too strong for me. The devil made me do it. That Flip Wilson, I believe, made that thing up there. Uh, we have Christ. We have his word. We have his sword. We have the Holy Spirit. So, you know, when we're tempted to look at that and feel overwhelmed and overcome, you know what? God, yes, Satan could kick our butts, but God could take care of him as his light work, as we'll see here. And I think that's something that will help us to put uh, the whole eternal thing in perspective. Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And I'm emphasizing this for a reason because I don't want it to be confusing. I'm going to break it down. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. A few things are going on here. Uh, to preface it, last Sunday we... We're in chapter 19. We saw the second coming of Christ. Christ comes in glory. He's on the, the white horse. He's got the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, and he comes back to earth. So what you have here is first, the earthly governments are deposed. Christ is the reigning king. Now, with any new governing administration, you see, even see it in human affairs. A new leader comes in and puts in his own cabinet. Christ will reign with other judges subordinate to him. The Apostle Paul and Jude also indicate that angels, probably fallen ones, will be judged. And it appears, at least in part, at the hands of believers. So you see this earthly, thousand-year, millennial reign, kingdom age, 
Christ comes ruling from Jerusalem, sets up possibly us as believers to be, you know, he get, gets rid of all the earthly, uh, non-Christian, ungodly leaders, and he puts his people in power. So some of us may be the leader of France or Greece or Sudan or whatever. Uh, there'll be judges set up, and in your mind, you kind of can use your imagination to, to at least in part to see how this might happen. In Matthew 19, 28, Christ promised thrones from which, from which the apostles were to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, as I go through a lot of these Old Testament scriptures, these things have not happened yet. And we know that if God promises something, he's always faithful to fulfill his promises. This time period will be 1,000 years of peace on earth. It'll put believers, believers will already be in their new spiritual bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says, uh, we shall all be changed as in the twinkling of an eye. We'll have new bodies as believers, not like this, that get old and break down. And uh, again, no doubt that these believers will be put in certain positions around the world. Um, and I'm going to support this with a lot of scripture. And the reason being is because in the third and fourth century, something interesting happened. The Bible always taught, the apostles taught about the millennial reign, taught about the kingdom age, taught about, you know, the Lord coming back and reigning on the earth for a thousand years. And there's a lot of descriptors in here. But somewhere in the third and fourth uh, centuries in the Roman Empire, uh, Rome became a little more friendlier to Christianity. You had a few emperors that were still pagan. Maybe some of them feigned a conversion and kind of were kind of walking the fence. But they were, they, the edict of toleration, you know, they would stop the persecution against the Christians. And, um, you know, let's get along, Roman government, Christians. But a lot of Christianity became paganized because the Roman world was pagan, and he couldn't make them unhappy. You know, they were the majority. So he kind of mixed a lot of, you know, paganism and bad influences in Christianity. So this idea came up that we can start allegorizing the scriptures, especially Revelation. Why? Think about the mindset, the psychology of it. If you're in, in, in pagan Rome and... The Roman Empire is nice to the churches and the bishops and all that. Uh, and you start preaching about Jesus coming back from heaven and smiting the pagan nations and deposing them and taking over. You think that's going to be politically correct back then? See, political correctness is a plague that is not just in the time period that we live in. It started back then. So what happened was, I believe it was Augustine, Origen, some of the early church fathers started to come up with this idea of allegorizing the scriptures. So that's where your, your background is. I find it interesting that uh, in the late 90s, before the whole 2000, year 2000 thing came around, uh, Janet Reno was the head of the Justice Department in the Clinton administration. Actually, I don't know, many of you probably don't know this, but there was a memo put out by the federal government to the local and state police agencies to which I received it as a police officer. And it said those groups, a profile of the groups likely to overthrow the United States in the year 2000, right? And it said a white male from the ages of 18 to 45 owning a gun and believed in the literal, literal return of Jesus Christ. And I'm looking at this going, they think I'm going to overthrow the country. <laughs> Yeah, but this is, this is what you have here. So, allegorization, and uh, I believe, and I've coined the term called desire-based theology. You basically see the Bible in light of what you would like, you know, depending on your affinity and your ideas. Uh, you don't like the idea of hell? Well, God doesn't send anybody to hell. That's the God that I'm comfortable with. So basically, six billion people on the planet make an idea of God in six different images, but God will not be conformed to our images. 
A few scriptures, uh, especially in the Old Testament, Isaiah 11, a good portion of that, Isaiah 65, Jeremiah 3, specifically verse 17, Zechariah 14, 19, Ezekiel 37, 2. These are unfulfilled scriptures. They still have to come to pass. A lot of them have to do with Israel, and a lot of them have to do with Christ, and they haven't been fulfilled yet. One I want to read that we probably... You go to Christmas play. Every Christmas, kids in a play, this is read. Um, Luke 1, 30, starting with 31, the angel comes to Mary and says to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua, or Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. Good so far. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And in his kingdom, there will be no end. Has that happened yet? Do you remember Jesus reigning over the house of Jacob? Would you call 12 guys the house of Jacob? I certainly wouldn't. Not that I know that they were from the 12 different tribes. So these are some scriptures that we read and we know and we talk about that haven't been fulfilled yet. Now, why am I building a case for the millennium? Well, first of all, it's in the scripture. Second of all, because this idea of allegorization has crept into the church. And a few, a few different groups especially. Number one... Uh, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I've gone to so many masses, etc., as a kid and as a young person. And the Catholic Church has a way of allegorizing a lot of the scriptures. A lot in Genesis and a lot in Revelation. All right? What, what do we know about eschatology, which is basically the study, the study of end times? We don't know anything. We can be in one of those churches for years, and they don't really tell you anything. Well, what's going to happen? Well, what, what do you see here? Well, it's basically a big war between good and evil. Protestantism, the same thing. Reformed theology, which is very aggressive, has a preterist view, a lot of it. Uh, things have already been fulfilled, or everything else is symbolized. And there's a problem with those views that I'm going to get into. You see, when we, one thing that I said when I started this study in Revelation was, if we don't build a good foundation starting in chapter 1, by the time we get to 20 and 21, we're going to all be messed up. All of you are going to line up outside and say, Joe, you said this in 2, and you said this in chapter 5, and then you said this in 20, and they're totally contradictory. I haven't painted myself into a corner yet. Why? Because we've done a good job of taking apart the Scripture chapter by chapter. Those who allegorize the Bible have a problem. Because basically, if, if it's just a war between good and evil, why is there 22 chapters of detail? Right? If everything has been fulfilled already, the preterist view... Well, I don't remember the last time I remember, since I've been alive or in the history books, that the bottomless pit was opened up and demon locusts came up and stung people and they wanted to die and for months they couldn't die. So there's a lot of problems with these two views. Even in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, James quoted Amos 9 in the Old Testament where David was to build, his tabernacle was to be rebuilt after the Gentile inclusion. This hasn't happened yet. And basically, if you say that God has a bunch of promises that haven't been fulfilled and we just kind of push them away, then we make God a liar, and that's a problem too. What happens with Israel? Well, the answer to that is replacement theology. So Israel, okay, there are promises that are made to Israel, and basically she's bad, uh, God is, has done with her, and the church now has become spiritual Israel. It's called replacement theology, and it has its roots in antisemitism. That's a problem too. It doesn't work out. As a matter of fact, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul says that God isn't done with Israel. 
that her disbelief is only for a time. She will come to her senses eventually. So this is something that we have to look at. Now, to some you may say, just give me the meat, just give me the application so I could take it home the rest of the week. But some of you may go on to be elders and pastors and leaders, and this is certainly a, a, a foundation that you need to have. The, what's the purpose of the millennium? Number one, to fulfill God's promises. Israel and Christ there's a lot of promises that have to be fulfilled that haven't been fulfilled yet, too. To show us the difference between a theocracy and an anthropocracy. And in short order, it just means taking liberties with that is a rule by God versus a rule by man. God ruled the children of Israel, and it was good. And then the children of Israel said, you know what, we want a king like all the other nations. So God you know, allowed uh, Saul to be put in as the first king, and then you saw that switch over. But now, over so many thousands of years of human government, we're going to see it go back to theocracy again in the kingdom age. And three, right in the Lord's Prayer, we said, Thy will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. Why do we pray? Why do we read scriptures? Why do we read uh, or why do we pray certain prayers if we don't mean it? So what you're saying when you read that prayer or you express that, that heartfelt idea to God in the Lord's Prayer is you're saying, Lord, we are looking forward to the day that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, few, two things here. Number one, amillennialism. And I have to cover this. Amillennialisms, uh, amillennialists don't believe in a literal 1,000 years. Uh, and that we today are living in this allegorized event. As Dr. Gray points out, many other Bible scholars, if with all the sin on the earth today, okay, and all the violence and all the uh, rebellion against God, if Satan is actually chained right now and we're living in that time period, then Satan has an awfully long chain. <laughs> and really, it makes God impotent because he says to Satan, okay, you're going to stop, you're going to knock it off, there's a seal put on you, you're not going to bother anybody for a thousand years. Well, what's he doing today? murders and wars and all that kind of stuff. So clearly we're not living in a time period that the amillennialists believe. In 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Peter says, in our age, Satan is on the prowl as a lion seeking to whom he can destroy. Now the postmillennialists believe that the gospel of Christ is going to transform and Christianize the world, which precipitates Christ's return. So Christ is going to wait while the church makes a good good place for the earth to be and when the church makes everything set up so the world is Christianized Jesus is going to return I think that's wishful thinking this started roughly the 18th century uh, but the problem with that was a few hundred years later they saw World War I and World War II and if you tally the numbers close to 100 million people civilians and military were killed in those wars bombs etc so the age of optimism kind of got destroyed with World War I and World War II. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. The Bible tells us, and we've covered this, the biblical apostasia, the falling away, right, has to come before Christ returns. So in essence, it's the reverse. Things are going to get worse before Christ comes and makes them better. And we see that in our study of Revelation. Now, what's the difference between the first and the second resurrections? Some may find this confusing. And what we see is you have the first resurrection and then the second resurrection. And between those two resurrections are a thousand years, that kingdom age. Let's go through it. The first resurrection is of the just, is of the saved, is of life, and probably includes all the Old Testament saints, um, all the Old Testament saints, 
Jesus as the first fruits. First Corinthians tells us that. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, he was resurrected. And in Matthew 27, at that, about that time period, uh, many people came out of their graves and appeared to many in Jerusalem. And Matthew 27. Okay, I don't know if you, you caught that. So Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And then what we have it encompasses the rapture. Okay? And it encompasses all the way up to the last tribulation martyr. And we've done enough of this book where we saw that people will be saved in the tribulation. They'll be martyred, and they'll be a part of that first resurrection. And that's to eternal life. The second resurrection, after the 1,000 years, is of the unjust or the unsaved. And that is to eternal death or damnation. The unrighteous dead are, are resurrected to face judgment and eternal damnation. John 5, 28 two verses John 5:28 Jesus says do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation we also saw this in Daniel chapter 12 and it's so cool when I talk to my Jewish friends, they ask me questions about Christianity. And they're like, so what's with this whole resurrection thing? I'm like, bro, your people started it. It's in the Old Testament. And I love to bring them back to the Jewish roots of why we believe what we believe. God's mindset, he's, he's got the same MO from beginning to end. The Bible says that God doesn't change his mind. So a lot of these roots we can find in the Old Testament. Now in verse 6, it says we get another blessing. And this is the sixth blessing of this book. You're going to be blessed if you're part of the first resurrection where death has no hold over you. Where death has no hold over you. And that's what we all look for. And the Bible also tells us in Revelation that we will be priests. And we saw that in Revelation 1, a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that mean? Well, the whole priesthood started as intercessors, as mediators, as teachers, as go-betweens between the people and God. They offered the sacrifices. You see, they were intercessors. And Jesus, we know, is our ultimate high priest, like the book of Hebrews tells us. He's the last high priest. Not only was he the sacrifice, but he was the priest that offered the sacrifice himself. So what, what do we see here? Possibly that we will be intercessors in the millennial kingdom between King Jesus and the citizens left on the earth. Now remember, when Jesus comes back, he smites the nations that are in rebellion against him, but there are going to be some people left that didn't participate. So it's going to be a very interesting time period. Uh, again, in my, in my idea or my picture from what I've read, it's, again, like Edenic. Um, the lion will lay down with the lamb, and uh, it says that the, the lion will eat grass like the ox or, or straw, and they won't be meat eaters anymore. There won't be that, that you know, vicious, voracious you know, um, instincts with the animals. Uh, people will live long lives. Uh, Christ will lead a perfect uh, world and he'll reign from Jerusalem and have righteous laws and righteous people in power. And there'll be those who are the believers because they come back in Revelation 19 to the earth following Christ with their spiritual glorified bodies. And then there'll be those who are left on the earth that were part of the old system and watch this 1,000 year thing happening. But the privilege here really is that we as priests become part of Christ's government. We're part of his cabinet. Some of us may be judges for him. We're ambassadors to a God-ignorant generation in our new form. And my question is, what are we doing right now to prepare for that? You know, sometimes Christians have the mindset is, ah, oh, when I get to heaven, 
this, that, and basically, I don't have to do anything until then. You know, I'll worry about that when I get to it. But I kind of liken that to someone who, for whatever reason, you're separated from a loved one, maybe across the seas, maybe a father. And, uh, you know, you just can't wait to see your father. But you don't write, you don't send a postcard, you don't call, you don't send an email. You just say, when I see him, I'll see him, it'll be fine. He kind of loses that portion of the whole relationship idea. So my question is, what are we doing now to prepare for eternity? The Apostle Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador, when you choose an ambassador as a, as a president, that's an honorable position to put somebody in. You're representing that country to other countries. We're ambassadors for Christ. We are in this world, but we're not part of this world. We're supposed to be representing his kingdom to a lost and dying world. We're ambassadors for Christ. What are we doing to grow spiritually? What comes to mind? Is there that desire to grow spiritually? Is there that desire to increase that relationship and be the best ambassador that I can be? Nobody wants to be picked as an ambassador and do a crummy job. Man, you know, I'll get there when I get there. You know what I'm saying? That's not what we're looking to do. We're, we're looking to be on our best behavior and make the best representation of the kingdom that we're representing. And that desire to become an ambassador only comes when we really believe God's promises. Because if we really believe his promises and we really believe that his turn is imminent and we really believe that we should be good stewards and that faithful steward, then we're going to act accordingly right now, aren't we? That's a good thing to think about. When we believe in God, when we hold eternity in our hearts, it changes our behavior and it changes our desires to be better and to be transformed and to be more Christ-like. Verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So Satan is released from the bottomless pit or the, the abyss, and he does what he does best, causes man to rebel against God. He hasn't changed his stripes, that's for sure. Now, again, backing up what we said, um, I've used the term before. There's a Greek phrase. It's called meta tauta. It's after these things. And as we go further on in the book, the Apostle John wants us to understand that there's an order to the visions he's seeing. There's an order to the events of the things that are happening on the earth. And he wants us to see that because it becomes ramped up. Metatauta is used a few times. There's another phrase here, and when it says, when the thousand years have expired. And in the Greek, that's kai metatachilia ete. And if you take that literally, okay, because that's important, it means after the thousand years have expired, then this happens. So what we see is that the, the Apostle John is literally walking us through a series of events as they unfold. And we see it ramped up towards the end of the book. Now, we could be labeled as premillennialists. I'm not really a fan of labeling. People say, well, what are you? You know, define yourself. We're non-denominational. We take the, the word of God literally. If that gives me a label and we're premillennialists, then so be it. I believe that what God says in his word is true. Okay? But why does God allow Satan to yet lead another rebellion? A few answers could be for this. Um, I don't know exactly what the right answer is, but... It shows that even in a perfect situation, man is still fallen. Kind of kills the excuses. I was born poor. I was born uneducated. 
I was victimized when I was young. Um, you know, it, it kind of takes all that away because here's a situation where everything is re returned to Edenic like, uh, like Eden qualities and people should be happy. They're righteous laws. You're not oppressed by the government. Everyone's well fed because I believe that King Jesus is going to do a great job. And this is the utopia that man has always searched for. So those growing up in this time period really won't have excuses for why their past is the reason why they're behaving this way now. It's not an excuse. The second reason is that the Earth's population, the entire Earth's population, has probably, much of it hasn't accepted Christ at this point. Although Jesus is outwardly their king, in their hearts, all they need is Satan to come up out of the pit, lead a rebellion, and boom, they're, they're jumping on that bandwagon, right? And that's true, I wonder, for many, is G King Jesus really our king? We sing the songs about Jesus being the king and being the one that we want to be like and the one that we want our eyes open, but is he really our king? Because if King Jesus is really ruling in our hearts, then that will transform us and we will be a certain way because of him being our king. Do we really trust him? Do we really follow him? And do we really obey him? And three, it goes to show how fickle humans are. In a perfect environment with the best ruler the world has ever seen, those will still complain and rebel. It goes to show that man is incorrigible. Remember, we talked about the, um, the third of the angels who rebelled against God. Could you imagine? You know, what's the problem? Why would a third of the angels cast their lot in with Satan and rebel against God? Working conditions not good enough? You know, you didn't get enough accolades? Well, what's the deal? You're serving God. He's perfect. But a third of them still rebelled. And we're going to see that here. Man is incorrigible. Man must be redeemed. Man needs his creator. Third thing it's going to prove. Number four, given enough time, sin, sinful man will ruin just about everything, including revivals. Maybe if the Lord tarries and the Calvary movement, which I think is a great thing. Hey, it's just the Bible. Keep it simple, stupid. Write that acronym. It's the Bible. It's the word of God. Given enough time, 10, 20 years, some guy is probably going to ruin the Calvary movement because that's the way men are. God does things that are perfect and we ruin it. We are incorrigible. We need him. And that's another, there are some that maybe are concerned. Well, you know, I, I know I need to be saved. I know I need to go up there. I know I need to receive Jesus. But, you know, I've got this problem with drugs or I've got this problem with stealing or I've got this problem with a relationship. Forget about it. We're all sinners. Come to the cross. God accepts you. Christ accepts you for who you are. He's already paid for those sins. They're already bought and paid for. It's not going to hold it over your head. Come to the cross. Let him do that work in you little by little and change you and develop you. Verse 8. So what happens is you have this rebellion. Uh, Gog and Magog are involved. Uh, probably not the ones in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Those of you who are Bible students. Um, there's some very key differences between the Magog invasion, 38, 39 of Ezekiel, and here. Uh, different places that they're attacked from, and uh, um, we believe that the Gog and Magog invasion happened sometime sooner. But Gog and Magog are also symbolic for those who are in rebellion. Uh, we see these words a lot being um, a pattern of prophecy, so to speak. So it can apply to Gog and Magog. There's meanings for the words, uh, just those type of rebellious people who are always looking basically to oppose God at any cost. Verse 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The devil 
And probably at this point in time, his demonic horde, his followers, uh, join the Antichrist and the false prophet, who right now have been for a thousand years um, rotisserie, or slow roasting in the lake of fire. But notice, they will be tormented day and night forever. Again, I don't understand where some of these... Maybe I can laugh at myself. Why do I get frustrated? It's like when you yell at the TV and you see something stupid and you want to throw a shoe at it. You know, they're talking about Jesus and they don't know what they're talking about, but they're just saying something to say it. But I don't know where some of these um, doctrines come from. Annihilationism. Jehovah Witnesses believe that. They believe that when you die, if you're rebellious, you cease to exist. Flatline. No brain activity. You're done for eternity. Well, to some of the rebellious, that's great. You know, they don't want to be punished. They just want to cease to exist. The evolutionist, the scientist, he's so revered in his community. He doesn't want God over him. So he's like, he finally meets God and God says, okay, you're damned. You're going to cease to exist. That's fine with me. I don't like you. You don't like me. That's fine. I'm done. I lived my life. That's wishful thinking though. There is no such thing as annihilationism. There will be forever and ever for eternity. You see... Just as the saved, now another conjecture here, just as the saved get new bodies to navigate both the spiritual and the temporal realms, the unsaved must be equipped with some type of body. Now, this is theory. I'm not sure how God's going to do it, but the flames of hell are, are hot. You know, it, they, they're never abated. They go on for eternity. What even metals, what can survive in that type of eternal flames? So the theory is that the, the unsaved are brought up, you know, they're they come out of Hades and they're reunited with their, their earthly bodies somehow and they're changed so that they can stay in the lake of fire forever and ever. Um, I should have named this fire and brimstone because that's pretty much where we're at. It's, it's not a pleasant thought, but it's here and it's, it's reality. And hate speech isn't telling people that there's a hell awaiting the rebellious. Hate speech is telling someone, you really need to change your ways and repent because it's waiting for you. That's loving someone. If I'm a surgeon and somebody comes to me and they have an incurable disease, but the, the treatment is a little bit difficult to go through, uh, it's actually very hard to go through, and I don't want to hurt their feelings, and I'm a surgeon and I say, you know what, you're fine, blood tests are fine, see you in another year, and you do this and all of a sudden the person comes back and they're debilitated and they die, they're going to take my license away. Why do we do that with spiritual things? You have a condition. Sin is the condition. That's your condition. And it's enough to put you into this lake of fire. You break one of God's laws and the chain between that God is holding you, it snaps and you plummet to your death for eternity. It's loving to tell you that this weight awaits the rebellious. You really need to think about your eternal security. You really need to repent. Verse 11, the last few verses. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When you take the Greek words, I think it's limne pur, and you take them into their component parts, it's literally lake of fire. There's no spiritualizing it. There's no making it sound nice. It's a lake of fire. Pur, where we get into English, 
pyro, right, pyrotechnic, uh, pyro means fire or flame. So even the words from the Greek to the English, we can see the roots there. I like the, uh, what do you call that, etymology of words to find their meanings. I think it's a lot of fun, but it's the lake of fire, and it certainly wouldn't be fun going there. Verses 11 through 15, this is the great white throne judgment. Those are judged and sentenced, not found in the book of life. Now, it's kind of confusing. So you got Hades, and we talked about Luke 16, and the rich man, and he's, he's talking to Abraham, but there's a gulf, and, and then what? They're, these things are thrown into the lake of fire. I, it's confusing. Let me help you with American jurisprudence, if I could, something where I can probably help out a lot. In the, to make it make sense, in the world, right, what happens is the police catch a bad guy. Let's say he's really bad. He's a serial killer. They take the bad guy, they throw him in the local lockup, they book him, they print him, they process him. And then he goes to a local lockup. Now he's there until his court case can come up because he's, it's alleged that he did something. The police aren't the judges, they just catch the guy. So what happens is he eventually has his day in court. He's arraigned, he's formally charged, and then he goes before the judge, maybe judge, uh, a jury trial, and he's found guilty for his crimes. What does the judge do? The judge sentence him. He's the judge. So the first, the final act of adjudication is the judge looking at defendant, the defendant, the, the guilty defendant, and adjudicating him, sending him to maximum security prison or life in prison where he doesn't, or the death penalty where he doesn't get out. He's done. He's punished. Now, in the spiritual realm, sinners not covered by the blood of Christ die. Now, you may say, yeah, but... And this is what the world says. There's a flaw in your analogy. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a killer. It doesn't matter. According to God's law, he is perfect. If you violate one of his laws, you're done. It's it. I've done it many times over, even being saved. So sinners die not covered by the blood of Christ. They're sent to a holding place to await sentencing, just like the world, right? There's death for the body. The body dies and it decomposes. And there's Hades for the soul of spirit. Now, in the fourth seal, if you remember Revelation 4, we saw death was on the pale horse and Hades was in tow. Remember? They go together, death and Hades. So the sinner now goes before the Lord's bench without a defense and he's sent to the lake of fire for eternity. So when the second resurrection happens, the, the dead in the sea, the dead in the, in the graves, they're they're resurrected, sort of like the rapture, like the good people, but in a different way. They're reunited with their consciousness, which has been in Hades, or their spirit, right? In a, in a tormentuous place, but in a spiritual sense. They're joined together. They stand before the bench of God. God sentences them, and he sends them into the lake of fire. So it's pretty, um, pretty hard stuff to, to look at. Now, what's interesting is that you say without a defense, what does that mean? Well, we have a defense, and this is not based on anything in the, in the scripture or anything, but I liken it like this. When I die, I'm with Jesus, who's my defense attorney, and the Father's the judge, in a sense. And uh, the Father says, listen, this is what you've done. You violated my laws, and it happens to every one of us. How do you plead? And I'm like, oh, I got a good defense attorney. I got Jesus, and he stands up and he says, guilty. I'm like, Guilty? You're supposed to be defending me. What's going on here? And uh, he says, you're right. My client did do all that stuff. And I'm like, oh boy, I'm really in trouble now. But your honor, if I may say, I paid for that. At the cross, when I shed my blood for the remission of Joe's sins, all that stuff is paid for. So you're right. He is guilty. He is guilty as sin. 
but I paid for his sins. And even the stuff he's going to commit, I've paid for that too, just to make sure this is a wrap and we don't go before the judge's seat again. And that's what you have. That's all God is saying is that if you're in rebellion, if you're a sinner, which we all are, come to the cross. Jesus already paid for your sins. Okay, so we have um, the sea, we have death, we have Hades. Now, there's a lot of speculation on this whole thing with the sea. And I've even heard people say that, I, you know, Bible teaches that I respect it was some type of lost civilization and the sea gave up the dead that way. But honestly, I just think that, that you have a holding place for the soul and the spirit, which is Hades. And then everything else holds the bodies. You know, people who die at sea, military funerals a lot of times, they, you know, in the Navy, they put, push them into the water. So there's like a lot of people who died in the sea. So everybody is given up who's not by the, saved by the blood of Christ and not part of the first resurrection, and they're resurrected. They're reunited, and they stand before the judge. And that's what I believe that means. In verse 13, it says, they were judged according to their works. You realize that everything is recorded that's kind of scary. <laughs> Everything you say, hey, listen, we come after church, we all fellowship, and, you know, we're all smiling and shaking hands and doing the Christian lingo, and then we go home and we argue with our spouse, or maybe the way we deal with our children is not a very, I see some smiles, not a very godly way, and, hey, keep, keep that, keep that in this house, you know, don't tell anybody what goes on here. What goes on here stays here. You know what's amazing? Everything that we've done is on this, you, know, you got the gigabytes and all these bytes and these computers can hold so much information. God has everything. He doesn't miss a trick. He sees everything. And the good news is for those of us who are in Christ, yeah, that's great. That's been covered. For those who are not in Christ, works good or bad, you did some good things, you did a lot of bad things, you violated my statutes. They're judged according to their works. And even in the Old Testament, the, the, the idea too is that in the Old Testament, depending on what time of crime you committed, and again, it's carried through in our jurisprudence, you would have different uh, degrees of punishment. If you stole a pack of gum versus if you went out and murdered seven people, okay, there's going to be a different form of punishment. And in the Old Testament, there was also different degrees of punishment. The idea is that in hell, some are going to be suffering much worse degrees of hell than other, but it's still hell. So, uh, you know, <laughs> certainly nobody, I don't know, I mean, it's just a poor mentality in Florida to say, well, I want to go to the good part of hell. You know, I just want to do just enough where it's not really that bad. Hell is hell, okay? You don't want to go there. And my question in the end is, uh, where are you going when you die? John 5:24, Jesus says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. First John 5, it says, He who has the Son of God has eternal life, the gift of God. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. A picture of hell should be sobering to us. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, It is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment. Reincarnation is wishful thinking. You know, if I'm bad, I'll come back as a lizard next time. Hopefully I can just sun myself on a rock for a few years. It's wishful thinking. There is no reincarnation. I'm just going to keep doing it over and over and over and over again until I get it right. It doesn't work. Annihilationism, it doesn't work. Okay? There's no second chances. That's something that we need to get through our heads. And that should really affect, when we meditate on that, how we live our lives to the unsaved. Wh whoever is unsaved, my question is, what are you waiting for? 
You're not promised another day of life, man. It's like you're gambling. You're taking everything you have and red, spin the wheel. I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. It doesn't happen like that. You just heard Tommy's testimony and, and Brenda, when the women hear her, man, you don't know. We're all this close from being done, from being toast. So if you're unsaved and you're listening today, let this be a wake-up call. The lake of fire. If you're not covered under Christ's blood, you're going to burn. Period. And I'm loving you. I'm not being a jerk. I'm loving you by telling you that. To the saved, I would ask the same question. What are you waiting for? What is it to the saved that's so important in your life that if somebody wants to know about God, you don't have time for them? I got a busy life. I'm great. I'm saved. That's wonderful. I got, I'm busy. I got things I got to do. Would you, if you were stopped, if you were uh, talked to somebody, if you knew that the Lord was giving you an opportunity to spend 15 minutes to tell someone about Jesus, would you do it? The way we live our lives, do we show people with our lives that, that we believe his word? You know? What is it that we put ahead, believers, brothers and sisters, of giving the gospel to a world that's hopeless? Change, hope. Yeah, they all ran on that, didn't they? There was a few of those politicians that ran on that slogan. They all copied off of each other. Clinton talked about that in the 90s. That's not something new. And then when they get, I don't care, Republican or Democrat, when they get in, does anything really change? A lot of times it changes for the worst. There is no man who's going to give you change and hope. I'm sorry. If that's what you're, you're, you're throwing your money on the roulette wheel, you can forget about it. It doesn't exist. And again, I'm not, listen, I'm not up here using my bully pulpit or trying to be difficult, and I can be at times, but I don't know when we're going to run into the lake of fire again. So I'm going to keep you here as long as it takes to make my point. <laughs> right? You can walk out if you want. So, <laughs> okay, so I made my point. You, you, you got it through. I got the feedback. But the bottom line is, guys, ladies, you know, the lake of fire, the lake of fire. I talked to a, a pastor that I respect who's very successful, and he said, you know, the Lord's been convicting me. That's not just from the pulpit, that in my personal life. I mean, I was sidetracked last night by someone, and I had to study, and I was out, and uh, I was ready to go home, and I was sidetracked by somebody who the Holy Spirit said, green light, this is it. And I was like, oh, I got to study. In my mind, I'm thinking, and God's like, listen, if you just love them, I'll give you the words anyway. Just go tell them about me. And believe me, I love telling people about Jesus. But he always seems to make it at the times that are inopportune. And that's a test. It really is. And I spent the next 15, 20, half hour, you know, talking to the, Lord, the guy about the Lord. He's like, oh, yeah, I get it. So, you know, let's, let's keep eternity in our hearts. And only through meditating on the word are we going to keep eternity in our hearts. And only is our behavior going to change by meditating on his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we again thank you for your word. And Lord